You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 240 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the very clever Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Hi, Val. It's Alison. <laughs> it's not Alison, <laughs> is it? Who are you? I've got a sore throat. Um, hey, Val. It's, um, well, it's Dean Curry here. Um, Alison's on the one holiday we give her every four years. So... <laughs> So, so I'm uh, stepping up to the plate. Well, thank um, you for stepping week. up to the plate. That's right. Um, Alison uh, is over in Canada, uh, having a well-earned break, and uh, Dean has kindly agreed to be co-host and fill in her shoes while she's away. So, thank you very much for taking the time to do that, Dean. Now, you've been on the podcast before, filling in for Alison, but in case there are some newbies, I think we should introduce you. Um, why don't you take it away and give us a little bit of, uh, you know, some dot points on who you are? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, this isn't my first rodeo. I've, I've been on the uh, podcast <laughs> once before. Um, I'm the content manager at the Australian Writers' Centre, so I've been doing that for a number of years. Uh, and also, I'm a freelance copywriter, so uh, that's yeah, that's sort of the rest of my the rest of my weeks taken care of, and we'll, we can talk about that a little bit later on as well. Yes, um, so Dean does a yeah. whole lot of writing. Yes, that's right. Father of three, Libran, <laughs> likes long walks on the beaches. Actually, I, I don't live. Too, I don't live. <laughs> I don't live too far away from Alison. Actually, we're kind of in the that's same right. part of the world. Yeah, that's right. so I, I'm here in, exactly. And I'm, I've got one fingerless glove with me in in sort of <laughs> honour of her today. So, and I'm feeling fair to middling. Oh, wonderful! So, All right, just sort you know, we'll just just get that baseline established. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, more on Dean later, but we <laughs> want to start off with a shout out to James Lindsay, 76, from Australia. Now, James hi, James. Kindly, yes, hi, James. James kindly left us a review on iTunes and James said, over the summer, I had a bad case of writer's blog. So bad, I found it hard to write a tweet without getting the sweats. Then I found this awesome podcast. I listened to one podcast and quickly mainlined several more. I was mowing, cleaning toilets, and any other chore I could, just so I could hear Valerie and Alison talk about all things writing. Like Domestos in my drains, my writer's block was washed away, <laughs> and I quickly found excuses to get the manuscript out. I've now finished book three in my Plato Wingard series, edited and polished and sent it off to the printers, hoping to launch in July and believing it's the best Plato yet. I've used a lot of the tips and strategies 
interviews talked about in these awesome podcasts and truly believe they have made my writing tighter and more effective. After reading Alison Tate's The Mapmaker Chronicles, I've even started a new middle grade series using Viking mythology and hoping this could be my breakout series. Thank you, Valerie and Alison. I look forward to each podcast as they drop and really appreciate the inspiration. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's um, high praise indeed. I'll pass it on to Alice. <laughs> um, it's, uh, well, it's, it's certainly, uh, he's um, got a clean house and a bunch of books Yet. out of it. From the look at that. That's right. And um, I've never been described as domestos in someone's drain. So I think I, that is high praise indeed. Uh, there's an opportunity. I think you guys, you and Al need to bring out your own range of cleaning products. I think that's the, uh, that's the moral of the story. It sounds like, uh, you know, he's uh, that's been his modus operandi, listening to you while he cleans. Yes, yes. So, well, thank you so much, James. Really appreciate you taking the time to give us that feedback and to give us a review on iTunes. And if anyone else has 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, that would be awesome because it really helps us in the rankings. So thank you, James. Shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, Dean? Yeah, let's do it. You drive the bus. I'll uh, right. I'll hold on. Okay, hold on. So, <laughs> one thing I wanted to talk about is this idea that so many of us keep reaching for perfection, which is certainly a noble pursuit, but it can certainly also be a form of procrastination and a form of um, not quite self-sabotage, but something that may be unnecessary if we're reaching for perfection because by virtue of, by definition, we probably never get there. And I was reminded of this when I was working on a creative project recently and I had given a brief to the creative and we agreed that she was going to deliver it on, you know, Wednesday, say. Mm -hmm. And I waited all Wednesday. It hadn't arrived yet, but true to her word, at 11.59 p.m., (laughs) (laughs) I got the email and she delivered on the Wednesday. And, yeah, that was a classic. But then, and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's just ridiculous. But then about two weeks later, I had to deliver. It was a collaborative project. I had to deliver on this project and I agreed to deliver on the Monday. And at at, sort of during the day on the Monday, I thought to myself, oh, I'm not going to you know, be one of these people that delivers at 11.59 p.m. But what did I do? At 11.56 p.m. is when I delivered <laughs> on my project. Which oh, is, look, you've got three minutes of bragging rights there at least, I guess. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> I, I did beat her. But the thing is I suspect she was in the same situation. I kept thinking I'm going to make it a little bit better. I'm going to make it a little bit better. And yeah. the reality is between 5 p.m. and 11.59 p.m., the incremental, you know, comma or semicolon that I added really wasn't making it um, proportionately better. So is this something that Mm. you also experience, Dean? Do you reach for perfection to the point where you're tinkering around the edges when really it's not making much difference? I think I'm president of this whole land you're talking about. I'm, I, I live there. I breathe it. I am so the 1159. It's not 
it's just not funny. I'm like, if it's if it's if it's still Thursday, then that's fine. I've got in on the deadline. I'm I've always I, I, often I'll start it at the eleventh hour. I won't even. It's not about tinkering. It's simply about you know. I've, it, it's it's a um yeah. It's something I do a lot of. But I've got to say, having a deadline is the best thing. Otherwise, who knows? It will just you just tinker forever. Um, I mean, yeah. deadlines at least give you this kind of target that you know you, that that's what you're judging yourself against, that you've got to at least get it to that point. Um, all through university essays, I was the racing down on my bike to get it just at 4.59 into the, <laughs> into the, the tutor's desk. And it was, it was a frantic day, but I, I just, it's just how I work. And I think it's a, how a lot of creatives work, um, whether it's tweaking it or simply procrastinating and not even getting started until later on. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's a solution for it apart from. So you think you need that pressure? Do you think you need that pressure uh, in order to, to, to produce? Yeah, I, I I think I do. There's a, there's a classic, um, blog um that a lot of you guys may know um the actual blog is called wait but why um it's and there's an amazing post all about um procrastination and the the panic monster that sets in after you've let the um the distraction monkey take the wheel for most of the day suddenly this panic monster sets in as the deadline approaches and you kick into gear in this adrenaline rush and i think um having worked in, in things like advertising where you've kind of got this the sort of last minute pitch overnight sort of syndrome where often you don't have you know um and maybe for yourself and jur- journalism sort of background where you've got quite quick turnarounds um often often yeah I, it's just something that i've always done it's, yeah absolutely it's something that um some people perform really well under pressure but other people find it all too stressful yeah, and give up true. yeah it it is different i mean an interesting thing with um um our, our furious fiction that we run um the competition each each month. I mean, that was sort and of. And in what, case there are any new listeners, just 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 tell us about Furious Fiction briefly. Yeah, sure. I mean, that was uh, my brainchild, if you like. <laughs> I'll tell you, um, it was. Um, it's a it's a it's a once a month competition, um, creative writing, and you have. Um, one weekend uh, to come up with a 500-word story. You have till midnight on the Sunday. So there's a definite deadline. On the Friday night, you get given set story criteria. And so it's very hard to sort of think up the story in advance. You really have to sort of kick off and you've got just that weekend to work on it. And um, we've had some interesting feedback about that because a lot of people um, simply say, oh, it just got me writing. It got me actually that deadline, that sort of – that that sort of adrenaline rush just forced me to actually stop procrastinating and actually, you know, um, give it a go. But back on the perfection, um, it does mean that you have to know that you've got to stop at some point and that you just, yeah, you, you need to know when it's good enough. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, of course, Furious Fiction starts, um, kicks off on the first Friday of every month at 5 p.m. and goes for 55 hours and you have until midnight on the Sunday night to 
to write your story. And if you want to join the Furious Fiction fan club, it's free to join. Just go to mm. furiousfiction.com.au and you'll be notified when the next one kicks off because every month someone wins $500. Yeah, it's all the, all the Fs. Yeah, that's yes, right, all the Fs. All the 50, Fs. First, first Friday, 55 hours, 500 words, mm-hmm. $500. Um, and it's fun, super fun. And, um, yeah, and that's the other thing. I mean, yes, one person will win $500, but, I mean, without seeming too glib, I mean, there's so many winners because people just love the fact that it gets them writing to a challenge. So, yeah, that's been really, yeah. really fun. Yeah. So many awesome stories. It's great reading them all. Now, I want to um, turn to – now, last time we were on the podcast, I had a really quick chat to you about how you got into copywriting. And one of the most astounding things to me anyway <laughs> that you spoke about was um, you, you know, had moved to this new town. You were you didn't really have any contacts. You needed to start your freelance copywriting business. And you went through the phone book or the internet or whatever and compiled a list of 500 agencies and, you know, advertising agencies and PR companies and targets basically that you might be able to um, approach for to see if they had any copywriting work. And the thing that was jaw-dropping to me was that in one week you cold-called 500 organizations. Can I just clarify? Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. It was, so I was, you know, over 10 years ago now, but yeah, 500. Um, I remember the, the, the thick stack of, uh, of pages where I'd sort of, um, I mean, this wasn't a directory. I'd created the, the document that I was printing out just by, you know, the, you know, by, by looking up, um, I'd worked in advertising. So I knew that some of the larger advertising agencies, you know, they all have their in-house copywriters, but there's such a, um, the sort of middle tier of smaller design agencies who do a lot of design work, but their clients also often need uh, copywriting work. So I knew that there was a lot of um, opportunity for a freelance copywriter um, who didn't have to go in and actually sit on site. Um, I was in, in a small town where I live. Um, so it was targeting Sydney mainly uh, in this case. And the, amazing how many there actually are. Um, and it was, and this is not me, Valerie. <laughs> I'm not, um, usually, yeah, no, I was always, um, you know, a little bit, and probably like a lot of the listeners, you know, a little bit scared to pick up the phone and, and actually the thought make of cold call. calling 500 people just sends me into sweats. Well, it, it makes me, me feel too. sick. And even the thought of it today, and I think it's that the key was just sort of, it was ripping that bandaid off all at once and having that courage for that one week. And it's amazing. It was really almost only for that first kind of couple of calls because then you actually realize, and some people who've worked in outbound call centers are probably laughing at this, but you know, but it is, it, it, it can be nerve wracking until, until it's not like, because remembering at the other end, they're only getting one call. They're not getting you calling 500 times. So it's yes. really just. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know what I mean. Like, it's yeah. all these people were only getting one call from me that week, so it's not. Mm. I wasn't harassing anyone. I was just making the call at that same time. Um, yeah, to to just a whole bunch, and there was hits and misses. I I think I, you know, some places I thought were design firms were like interior design, um, yeah. and you know they were blinds and and shutters, and and probably didn't need my services quite as much as say a graphic design, which was sort of the places I was was going after. And is it, it did that end up being um, 
basically the give you the momentum. I understand that that gave you the momentum that basically you didn't have to look for work for the next ten years. Yeah, yeah pretty much. It that, gave you that, that, your clients. Yeah. Yeah, that that got the ball rolling. It's it's odd as obviously word of mouth as you as you go on is is great and clients since then have been from all sorts of um, um, from places. But if you actually trace them back, it's almost like a family tree. You can actually realise where that that client you now work for. Uh, got the recommendation from a previous client, or you know, a, a client that you'd also done work for, and and from and you often it comes right back to that call back in two thousand and seven <laughs> that I made to some random place that I may not even do any work for them anymore. I might have just either done one job for them back then, or they've passed the name on. But now I get regular work from someone else, like three steps removed. So it's really. Um, it was so good. I mean, to give you an idea of the numbers, um, yeah. you know, let's say 500, um, it, that was the initial call where it was just establishing who to send and like who to send out sort of my information to. So yeah. I didn't need, and that's the important thing. I didn't need to speak to the person. I just needed to know the person to, to direct my, uh, pitch to, if you like. So yeah. it, and that's what, and that's where I put a lot of effort into making sure the pitch was really quite memorable. So what I mean by that is it was an email which was very well written and, and quite memorable. So you, as a copywriter, you're selling your, your words. So yes. if, if, if your words have impact at that point, well, that's, yeah, it's one of those those things. It's like a, a graph, it's like a web designer having a bad website. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, yes. it's uh, actually, I shouldn't have mentioned that. My website's pretty terrible at the moment, but I'm not a web designer. <laughs> Whereas as a writer, when you're writing to someone to tell them how good you are at writing, um, if they're not, especially copywriting, if they're not, if they're not grabbed <laughs> by your actual pitch, then, then it's kind of selling your services at that, that time. So, um, on the numbers, I'd say 20 to 30, um, of that 500. So it's, it's not, we're not talking 20 or 30, about what happened to the 20 or 30. What do you mean? 20 to 30 would have become, um, clients. clients. Ah, okay. Great. So okay. it's, so that's actually, you know, what's that? It's not, it's not a huge amount, 4% or, um, am I doing my math right? I think so. Um, it's, it's yeah. not, I mean, it's not a it's not a huge amount, but in marketing terms, it's a bit of a victory. So it is yeah, a numbers definitely. game um, because everyone's got different. You know, people do it, do it themselves. They've got in house. They've got other things, um, but they became clients. And you know, whether it was just you know, put the name on file, and I heard from them like two years later. You know, it was still there was still a lot of inertia to get past at the beginning when I'm, I'm establishing um, a new business. But you know, it was really as to say it's it's led to clients that I now have. Um, whereas yeah, that's I actually fantastic. Forget- and, yeah, and of this, course, that was good. You, you, you still have those clients because you work part-time as content manager at the Australian Writers' Centre and the other part of the time you're a freelance copywriter and one of the things that you do a lot of is real estate copywriting. So how did you get into that and why were you interested in real estate copywriting? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's really through a client, um, a client that was doing a lot of um, show homes that I got into um, writing a lot of property copywriting. And from there, um, a bunch of other clients that were doing true the true sort of real estate listings, um, you know, for everything from one bedroom apartments right up to 
luxury homes. So, so these yeah, are was, real estate listings that were like on domain.com.au or realestate.com.au or on the websites of the actual real estate agents. Is that right? Yeah, those ones were. So they're exactly as you would read in a property magazine or on online. Uh, even on those big billboards, sometimes they, they'll they have a blurb mm. on the front outside the house. Yeah. And what do you enjoy I mean, about writing real estate listings? Um, I think – I think it's really um, it's almost like the challenge is part part of the um, part of the fun because you are dealing with something which it, it, there are a lot of cliches and there's a lot of ways that have already been used to say it. So it's coming up with a different way to say it and to sell it. Yeah, and so you would have done hundreds and hundreds, probably maybe even thousands of real estate listings in your time as a real estate copywriter. So it, when you do that many, how do you make sure that you keep it interesting for yourself but also make sure that you're not repeating yourself and using the same old cliches all the time? Yeah, that, that, that can be hard. I mean, that is the challenge. Um, it's really just about um, having a really good source. <laughs> and um, and because it, it, it is about adjectives, it's about just yeah, it's about description, but also remembering that every house um, it sounds kind of twee, but every house is unique. It's finding those you know finding those sort of um, features and benefits of a house that that is truly different from from the next one, and um, and really honing in on those and and because it is an emotional purchase, unlike a lot of other things. Um, so it is trying to tap into those more emotional. Um, hooks, I guess. And so let's, I mean, let's be honest, is it also a little bit, what's the word, um, you know, voyeuristic, not voyeuristic, but you get to see inside all of these people's houses. Is that interesting for you? Is that something that's appealing for you? Well, it, it can be. I mean, I, I, certainly, I, do a, I do a range, so I do a lot of site visits, um, but most of the, the copyright I do lately has actually been remote. So it's, I'm not really walking around all the time, um, but certainly you get to see the photos and the floor plans and that sort of thing. Cool. So, and, and you get to know what the trends are, the, the latest trends that are, that are happening in the, in the industry. So that is pretty neat. Yeah. And the thing is, I know there are a lot of people who are interested in, uh, in real estate, in interiors and in trends in housing. And so one of the most exciting things that Dean has been working on with the Australian Writers' Centre is a new course on real estate copywriting because he has had years and years and years of experience in exactly that and has written um, real estate listings where he has been able to view the house, but also where he's even been able to do it remotely, which is a great way to earn a living, um, you know, to do it from the comfort of your own home. So that's launching really soon. I'm pretty excited about it, Dean, are you? Yeah, I'm really excited. I think it's one of these um, these sort of niche uh, copywriting areas, which is just around us all the time. And there's so much um, work available potentially um, if you know where to go and find it and if you can actually break into it. And that course will cover, uh, yeah, just certainly how to get into the industry as a writer and some, some tips, but also um, once you're in there, just how to really add value as a copywriter uh, because a lot of agents write their own, write their own copy. Um, but as a writer, you can also offer um, an alternative and let them concentrate on, on selling. On selling. Yeah. So, um, 
um, that course is launching soon and I know that there are a lot of people who are interested in it. So we might get Dean back next week to give us his five tips on, on real estate copywriting. But if you're interested in finding out more about the course um, and want to be notified when it launches, which is very soon, then just go to writerscenter.com.au slash real. That's writercenter.com.au slash real and um, uh, download a course outline and we will make sure we notify you as soon as the course launches. So um, very exciting development um, that Dean is involved with. Let's move on to our competition this week. Now, we have an awesome competition where you can win a three-book pack featuring some of our fabulous Australian Writers' Centre presenters. Uh, the first book is The Paris Seamstress by Natasha Lester, and it's a story that crosses two timelines to tell the story of Parisian seamstress Estella Bessette, who is forced to flee France as the Germans advance in war-torn 1940. Years later, her granddaughter, Australian curator Fabienne Bissette, journeys to the 2015 exhibition of her beloved grandmother's work, uncovering a story of tragedy, heartbreak and secrets from the past. The next book is Beauty and Thorns by Kate Forsyth, which has been described as the reimagining of Sleeping Beauty, taking place in pre-Raphaelite times. And there are many twisting threads of obsession, heartbreak and awakenings in this dramatic tale. Also, there is Reading the Landscape, which is uh, a book that features Patty Miller because it's a celebration of Australian writing, writing featuring 25 of the greatest Australian writing names from past and present. So you could win this three-book pack. Um, the competition closes on the 16th of July. So just go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Uh, and that's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now. Dean. Now, Valerie. <laughs> Are you ready for the word of the week? Uh, see, yes, I'm a bit of a kindred spirit. Yes, I am. <laughs> I know Alison gives you a hard time about the word of the week, but I'm a bit of a word nerd as well. So let's do it. Let's do word of the week. All right. So the word of the week is a suggestion from Kaylee in Queensland, and I love this word. It is defenestrate. So that's D-E-F for Fred, E-N-E-S for Sam, T-R-A-T-E, defenestrate. Do you know what Defen it is? Defenestrate. Um, you're about to tell me, I'm sure. I am. Is, Go has on. it got to do with windows? Does it have to do with windows? It, could, it sounds like it would, wouldn't it? But no. What's, what's that word for a window? Def yeah, that's right. Oh, I'm sure there's gosh, something no, like that. Me. But anyway, mm. according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means to dismiss someone with great speed from political office. So you might say, he needs to be defenestrated before the next council election. It sounds a little bit... Mm. Rude, but yeah, anyway. yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. I, right. I was actually thinking, is it one of those words w which you can only type with your left hand? But no, the N, okay, no. you know, oh, it, it seemed like it was almost there, almost on think. the left hand sides of the wording. What, what word can you only type? <laughs> I, think, with your left I think it's hand? a word that's a bit cool. like that, which 
Maybe, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's a word similar to that, which you can just type with your left hand. That's um, so funny. You know. Okay. Um, all right. We're going to move on to our writer in residence this week. And our writer in residence is Kirsty Manning. And I had a great chat with Kirsty. Her first book was The Midsummer Garden, which was published last year. And now The Jade Lily is her second book. She's a, a writer based in Melbourne and she combines her writing with running, of all things, an award-winning wine bar <laughs> in Melbourne and also a wine store in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and uh, so we had a great old chat about her great writing process. Yeah, <laughs> writing and wine, yes, um, about her writing process and uh, the writing of The Jade Lily. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, this beautiful book, your beautiful book, The Jade Lily, for some readers who haven't read the book yet or discovered the book yet, tell us what it's about. Well, it starts with a little girl, well, she's not little, 13 years old, um, on the night of Crystal Night in Vienna. And we follow Romy as she flees Austria and boards a ship to Shanghai, the only place in the world, really, that um, they could go without a visa and that would let them into the country. So they go to Shanghai and here she befriends uh, her next-door neighbour, Lee, a Chinese girl, and she learns the world of Shanghai through her next door neighbor's eyes. And then there is a contemporary storyline of Alexandra who is um, coming home to Melbourne because her grandfather is dying. And through her grandmother, she learns the story of her Jewish refugee grandparents and their time in Shanghai during the Second World War and their life in what is now known as the Shanghai Ghetto. Mm. And it's just such a, a a great idea for a book and a setting and an era. I understand there's quite an interesting, you know, way this idea came about and into your head. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I actually was in Shanghai on a holiday with my children and I was walking really down a laneway in Hongku, which is one of the poorer areas of Shanghai. And I walked past an old door and there was a a red door with a rusted on Star of David. And I I was gobsmacked. I mean, what was this Star of David doing in the middle of Shanghai, which was a communist country? And it was the last thing I was expecting. And I then found out that just around the corner, there was a Shanghai Jewish Refugees Museum. And we went there and I discovered that 20,000, over 20,000 Jews were given shelter in Shanghai during the Second World War. And this just blew me away. I had no idea of that history and that pocket. Mm. I had no idea of the history of Shanghai full stop and I had no idea of the Jewish history in Shanghai and it just fascinated me. It just just kept on calling me and I came home and I contacted the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne Mm. and they put me in contact with some um, people and resources and I, I just started researching from there. But when this occurred, this was when 2005 I read somewhere, I think. that is that right? No. No, when, when, when did you go to Shanghai? 2011, the first time. Oh, okay, all right. Went there, so, yeah. 
But when you came back, um, did you think I'm going to write a book about it or did you think I'm just interested and I'm just going to do some research? No, I didn't. I had no idea. Um, actually, it was 2014. I'm jumping ahead. I'm thinking oh. my years of my children. Um, I I didn't know, but I was I was hooked. I was completely intoxicated by the history of Shanghai and the city, the scents and the smells and the architecture. Um, we walked the Bund and the French concession with these plane trees, giant plane trees that overhang the buildings and kind of kiss in the middle. So you're walking through this um, almost cathedral of trees in the French concession and I I just was fascinated with this city that could be old school dumplings out of a pot on one corner and then, you know, the fastest train in the world and, um, you know, Blade Runner the next. It was, <laughs> <Yes>. it, was <laughs> it was fascinating to me. I'd, n- I'd never been somewhere like that and um, it was really quite eye-opening. So you do this research um, because you're fascinated. At what point did you think, I'm writing a novel based on this? Well, I went, I went back. I think we, I became so fascinated with it, we did a stopover again on the way on a family holiday and I went back to the Jewish Museum and, and then I started looking at the people's stories and the shoes they were wearing and the photos of the flooding and the Heim, which were the boarding houses that the refugees lived in in the ghetto and the cafes. And I started learning about the stories um, of people, how they came to be in Shanghai and I guess their life in the ghetto in Shanghai because don't forget in the late 1930s, Shanghai was the wealthiest, the most glamorous, the most dazzling international city in the world and um, it just must have been extraordinary to sail up the river and see the Bund, these huge European um, Renaissance and Art Deco buildings sort of perched on the edge of the river with um, sampans and barrels and live frogs and, you know, snakes and scents, Mm. the scent of star anise and um, cotton and, you know, these strange smells of foods that they've never smelt before and I just thought imagine imagine coming into this city from Europe and Mm. um, seeing these buildings that look ostensibly European but not understanding the language um, or the sense or the culture or anything around it was just it would have been packed packed the docks and the I've seen pictures of the river where the the rivers are just heaving with boats and sampans and there's jetties everywhere it just felt like chaos in the pictures so I can only imagine Mm. what it felt like when you got off onto the docks yes. and um, so I really tried to capture that. I, I started thinking about uh, how I could capture that in a story and then there was one particular photo of two little girls. It was a, a European refugee and two um, Chinese girls laughing and they were wearing little Peter Pan collars and it looked like they were sharing a joke. They both had their hair pulled back with ribbons and they looked like really tight friends and I thought that's it that's my story this is a story about this is my way into Shanghai it's going Mm. to be through the friendship of two girls love it and so you you went back the second time you go to the museum you find out 
all this other stuff. You see this picture of little girls and you think, okay, that's my story. What then did you have to do to do more research about the era and the customs and the just everything really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I took a walking tour of Shanghai. There's a great historical society called the Art Deco Shanghai. You might not know, but Shanghai has, um, I think one of the greatest collection of Art Deco buildings in the world. So I did a walking tour of those buildings and I also did a Jewish tour with a journalist called Devere Gal um, Amir and he uh, took me through, walked me through the building starting at the Cathay Hotel that features in my book and took me right through the ghetto into the buildings that people lived in and then again onto the museum and he showed me where they cooked and where they lived and how they went to school and um, and then I started reading a lot of memoirs from people. There's a lot of articles online and I bought a lot of memoirs too. Um, but the thing with memoir is everyone remembers things slightly differently. Yeah. But But what was universal in all the memoirs was the deep – reverence that um, that the refugees had for the Chinese people and how they really took them in and looked after them and their um, generosity. It was a real sense of um, to, to be stateless. These were stateless refugees and it would be the most horrific, awful feeling we see it you know it's still happening today and there's nothing any of us wouldn't do really to save our families and um, to get them into a safe harbor and it really struck me that's what all of these people were doing and um, and their resilience and their courage to survive those um, years of the Japanese occupation where food was essentially cut off. And so everyone had to make do. Um, Chinese families were sharing with Jewish refugee families in the ghetto. There could be as many as 10 or 12 or 14 people to a room. It was really, um, it was tough, bitterly cold in winter and in summer, um, humid and hot with dysentery and typhoid rife um, with not enough medicine to treat people and um, and yet still the photos that I saw at the museum were people sharing Chinese New Year meals together and going to school together and playing hoop games in the street. It really was quite an extraordinary time. So you do have a couple of timelines going and and obviously they're interrelated. How did you, when you were writing it, how did you arrange your writing? Did you write the timelines separately and then mix them up or did you write them in a linear fashion? How did you plot the story as you go went along with these two timelines? Well, before I um, started this book, I knew that it was based during a war, the Second World War, and there were certain time, certain dates I had to hit. And it just so happened, Valerie, that I had done the Scrivener course that you offer through the Australian Writers' Centre because I thought yeah. it would be good to get a new tool, the kinds of books I write, dual time frame. Um, and this one, especially with very clear dates, I mean, in the Second World War, there are certain dates that you have to hit. Um, and so I, Scrivener really helped me map out those dates, the line of the story. So I had certain ideas 
of scenes that would happen and without giving away elements in the story. You know, the war begins and ends on certain dates and there are certain things that happened in Shanghai that were big international events that happened on certain dates. And so I I put those in as key events and um, and then I had uh, certain scenes that I wanted. I wanted... Um, Romy's first impression of Shanghai, she sails in on the boat. I wanted her in the cafe hotel. There were certain um, – Shanghai is almost a character in the book as well and um, there were certain places that I wanted to show off in Shanghai mm. on particular dates. That was really crucial. Um, so I did that and then I had the – um, contemporary time frame, and I could color code that, so it was very clear, <laughs> and um, and that allowed me to lace the contemporary story through because that was obviously um, Alexander is dealing with different issues, but really, yes. when you're writing historical fiction, you are lacing a mystery through the book, and you have to lace it through both eras. And um, I found Scrivener very useful for laying out the line of my plot. Mm. But when you actually wrote it, did you write the timeline separately or did you actually jump between the two? I did bits and pieces. I would work on the benefit of working in dual time frame is you can work on um, the historical aspect until you're sick of it or until you're at a part where you don't know and then you can switch across to the contemporary. I start, I have a very, before I even start writing a book, I have a very clear idea of what the opening is Mm. and I have a very clear idea of what the ending is. Ah. And And then, as I said, I had some key dates and so I, in the middle, I kind of patchwork it together until I get the sense of what the characters are and what the line of the story is, but I always know where I'm heading. I mean, that can change, and it did change slightly, but um, but uh, it it there were certain aspects. Um, so the for the historical, the first hundred pages, I just wrote that in one go, and then I broke it up, and then with the contemporary, that was scene by scene laced throughout. So. Yeah, so right. So that's how I work. It's it's a bit like threading together a patchwork quilt and sometimes yes. you have large chunks and then um, I think in the last few days before this due, was due with the publisher, I had two scenes. I just wasn't quite sure how to link two crucial scenes and I was still umming and ahhing about it and then um, in two days I kind of wrote the two connecting contemporary scenes that stitched the whole book together and mm. it was like, voila. Yes, fantastic. So, I'm just not sure how that happened completely, but that was a touch, touch <laughs> of magic. You do the work and of, it comes home. That brings that's it home. right, the magic of creativity. So uh, you said you have a very clear idea of how it's going to start and a very clear idea of how it's going to end, which is, is great. Did the and, and the way it starts is very powerful. Did the way it ended up? in the book reflect the way it started in your head when you were conceiving it? Yes, it did actually. It did because um, 
I think by then I had done a lot of research into the era and then I had stepped away and developed my own characters. And I should say that the um, Holocaust Museum put me in touch with two Jewish refugees, Sam Mashinsky and Horst Eistfelder. And as I was writing, um, when I finished the first draft, I actually went and met with them. And Sam has this booming baritone voice and he was a Russian Jew that lived in the very wealthy French concession and Horst uh, lived in the ghetto. He was a Viennese refugee and he actually, as it turns out, came out on the same boat as my character Bromi and um, his parents owned Café Louis, which features in my book as well. So um, I didn't know that when I was writing it, but it came out when he was reading it. And they, um, I had written the beginning and I had written the end and I had the characters in my mind and then I gave it to them to read, to feel um as well as some other beta readers too, but I really wanted to know if, um, because I was very nervous writing about this era that people lived through mm-hmm. and I'm not Jewish and I'm not Chinese and yet I felt very, very compelled to tell this story. So I um, wanted to treat it with the utmost respect and mm-hmm. to feel like I was hitting the true notes without mm-hmm. Um, without touching on anyone's personal story. Mm, sure. And um, you, this is your second book. It is. I mean, your second novel. The first one was did very, very well, The Midsummer Garden. Did you feel, you know, what is known as the pressure of the sophomore act? <laughs> uh, I don't think so because I remember when my publishers asked me um, – so my first book went to auction and all the publishers asked me if I had a second book. And I just, I had this Shanghai story buzzing in my mind. And I, I remember I sat down Good Friday actually and typed up the proposal for it mm. and um, handed it in uh, that my agent handed out with the auction and um, it got bought. And mm. I really didn't read that proposal again. And until I, until the day before, funnily enough, I handed it into the publisher. I thought, oh, I better check. Better check I'm on the right track here. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, it was pretty close to the wire. Right. So, so it had, I think, the resonance of this story, and I don't know how that happened, but I did feel, um, I don't think I felt pressure because this is a very different book to the Midsummer Garden. It's got much bigger themes. I mm. felt pressure to capture the era well enough that people who lived it would um, appreciate it. I thought that was my pressure. Although my husband did right. say that it was like I was giving birth because every time I would walk past the office, I would say, "I'm not doing this again." If I come, if I if my next book remind me I'm not doing a war with tight dates like this. <laughs> um, so, what was the hard part about? What was the hardest part about the process then, or about capturing the era, or what? Yeah, what was the thing that was the toughest bit? Well, I think because there are so many um, wonderful World War Two stories, and nobody, nobody has fictionalised this um, corner of history in Shanghai, and um, and I think the hardest bit was 
telling the story properly and making it, um, capturing the era and telling, making an interesting enough tale that would keep people enthralled to the end. So I think, um, I don't think my publishers put any pressure on me. In fact, they just, they were, they were like, you, you really need to relax actually. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but um, I sent it in to the publisher. I sent it in to my agent and um, my publisher, uh, she's a beautiful woman, Annette Barlow, she was very busy and I didn't hear from her for a couple of weeks and I was holding my breath for two weeks. Oh, yeah, it's stressful, isn't it? And then eventually she got back to me and said, Kirsty, this is magical. It is wonderful. You've created wow. something special here. So um, so I think I think my pressure was to... Uh, do it so that if people like me had not come to the story before, you could pick this up and have go, go be curl up and learn about a new era and have a wonderful tale. And I just oh, want- absolutely does that. Absolutely does that. So do you, have you always wanted to write novels? I think so. So when you were little? I really did. Yeah, I loved creative writing was my favourite um, story, um, I guess my favourite subject when I was little. Mostly my stories were about um, ponies and netball, although I did branch into the crime area because I did, um, my mum reminds me, I wrote a story about smuggling guns to Afghanistan in netballs. Oh, <laughs> and. Right. Um, and I did a bit of poetry through high school and I studied literature and I remember writing an essay on Peter Carey's um, Oscar and Lucinda mm-hmm. and there's a particular scene where the glass house is floating down the river and that was it for me. That was it. I thought if I can if I can once in my life write a scene like that, that would be magic. Oh. And, um, and then I studied literature at university and I went and worked in book publishing and, but I worked in nonfiction and, um, I think I love that. I really love that. And then when I had kids, I started working freelance journalism. So I did a lot of travel writing and features and a lot of food, obviously food and wine, because that's my personal interest. But what that told me when you're a um, freelance journalist, you really only got 400 or 800 words to capture a place or a person. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that gave me the skills of writing, um, creating, uh, capturing a personality and, and the essence of a place in very tight, um, in a very tight way. And I think now, that really. Mm. Yeah, no, you go on. No, I was saying that was, um, stood me in good stead for writing novels. I thought that, that, um, and writing, you know, a thousand words pretty quickly. Yes. It was yes. very businesslike. I'm very businesslike when I write. Okay, so let's talk about that then. When you were writing, like, the, uh, you know, it's more than just an idea, you're actually writing it, how did you approach it? Did you aim for a word count or a, a number of hours with your bum in the chair? How did you approach it so that you would get it done? Well, with this book I did the NaNoWriMo. Yeah. So I did the 50,000 words in uh, the November. and which gave November me of what bra- year? Uh, two years ago. Okay, so 2016. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. And that gave me sort of a loose draft. And that was a lot of unfinished scenes in there. But generally, um, I think the uh, benefit of having been a jobbing journo is that I don't waft around and wait for the inspiration to come. I sit mm. down, I write a thousand words. Um, if it is not great, I know that I can edit it. You know, I know I can fix it, but you can't edit something you don't have. So yeah. it's all about getting those words down. And um, a book like this, the scale of it is so vast that you really have to do the work. But I do the research. I've learned from my first book, I guess the difference between writing a first book and the second book is that I know not to go down rabbit holes of research. <laughs> and um, having planned out, mapped out the story, the loose plot, I mean, I leave it really open. You can't be mm. too um, dictated by it. But having a very loose thread um, gave me a very clear idea of what I needed to know, dates I needed to know, places I needed to write about, and um, circumstances around each of those scenes. So that was very useful, I found. And also, when you've got a publishing contract to get a book out in a year, you really can't afford to faff around. You really need to know what you're going to research. And um, and as much as I'd love to spend hours on end uh, looking up the different types of dumplings in Shanghai, <laughs> and trying you've got to you've got to and trying them all. And um, you do you just have to be very clear about what you need to know. Yes. So you touched on earlier that you have a passion for food and wine. You kind of like have a day job, right? Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, well, my husband and I have um, the Prince Wine Store in Melbourne and Sydney and also a restaurant, Belotta. We're partners in a, in a kind of a European wine bar down here in Melbourne. But I should say I don't work on the floor at either of those places. Right. And so do you have to spend a lot of time on that business or, or, or and is it quite a juggle then or – or really, do you spend most of your time writing and being an author? I spend most of my time writing now. I come and write upstairs at the restaurant. Obviously, that's um, business conversations are ongoing in our marriage and partnership, but um, my head is not so much in the business. We have uh, three children as well, and we live just out of Melbourne, and I still do a bit of freelance work every now and again, so I find that um, I'm up to my eyeballs in uh, logistics in any given week. So I really, that's why when I sit down to write, I really have to write. I have to punch it out. There's no coming back to it the next day because the next day can easily loop into the next day. And, yes. um, and my weekends and school holidays are completely chewed up by um, children's sporting activities and social activities and logistics. Mm. So and being in the country, we have to drive everywhere. So yes. um, I, I spend a lot of time writing besides swimming pools and basketball stadiums <laughs> as well. <laughs> I love it. All right, so with this book, as we've established, there's there's quite a bit of research uh, that was done not only in Shanghai but also here. Um, how did you manage that research as in on a practical level? Can you describe to us, you know, where did you keep it? Did you keep it electronically? Did you keep it in folders with lots of bits of paper? How did you record <laughs> the the things that you remembered from going on the tour and stuff like that? So can you tell us a bit about, about that? 
So I had copious notebooks and photographs from my various trips and I did breakfast food tours and, as I said, the Art Deco tour and then I did a private history tour through the French concession and I kept notes on all of that. I had memoirs that I read and um, I have a very sophisticated system of sticky noting pages. (laughs) (laughs) And and, um, on various scenes, as I read something, I'll I'll start to get an idea of a scene and I'll often open a new scene in Scrivener and just footnote the page of the book that I'm going to work on or come back to just as a reminder when you when you get to that scene this memoir on page oh uh, 32 has spent some time in that area or they were there on that day where this incident happened so refer back to that page so I do that I do that quite a bit actually that's so systematic Oh, it doesn't feel like it at the time, but I guess it is. And I have a series of um, sticky notes also on the back of my door, so um, of my office door that I colour code. So I have one colour for the contemporary and one colour for the historical. And I literally just move them around on the back of my door with, um, say, she, Romy arrives at the Bund, um, chapter one, and then Romy goes to her new apartment, chapter two, Romy at the cafe, chapter three, and then I'll move them around um, and insert. That allows me to put in the contemporary um, storyline as well. And I can also tell at a practical level, if I've got too many sticky notes of the one colour, I can tell where the momentum Mm. of the story is and it's just a visual. And you can do that in Scrivener too, of course, but um, but sometimes I forget, so it's – I refer back to my um, very effective sticky note on the back of the office door. Yeah, yeah. And so this book it's is a bit now like the out. Index. Yeah. Yes, yes. That 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 makes sense. And I'd love the color coding to visually see where the, you know, where the momentum is in your story. Um, so this is this book is out now. What are you working oh, on now? Out. I am starting on a new book that threads through several eras in London and uses London at the at the kind of heart of the international uh, jewellery trade. So it will be another mystery, a family mystery and um, family secrets and uh, it will thread. I think this one will go across three different eras. And how have you researched that? Well, I'm just diving in at the moment, but I'm planning on taking myself off to London and a couple of other places. But I am, this came about, this particular story came about by a newspaper article that I saw and it just triggered a question. It was just right for the picking. It's a mystery and unsolved. It's a real, based on a real life unsolved mystery. And um, so I am going to, without giving too much away, I'm going to dive into whether it's still a mystery and whether I can solve it. Wow, cool. And so. And who doesn't uh, love a diamond well, yes, exactly. So do you find that you want to dive into a different era each time with your novels or or different, you know, world effectively and, and, and research it? Is the research just as an important part of the process as the writing? I think the research is uh, crucial. I think the two go hand in hand. I um, I kind of wish I was a bit 
the author that wrote in the same era. I think that would save, <laughs> I think that would save a lot of time. But I, I think um, I think my stories come from the idea first, the story and the place. Mm. It's it's one particular like that moment in Shanghai and then in Midsummer Garden there was a particular chateau in France that triggered an idea and Mm. in London there's a particular mystery that I need to explore and it comes from the story and the question that needs to be solved and and then I build a story around that. So I, I go to the place, I research it and then I'll find that my characters and my story are building um, alongside that process and already I've mapped out for this book, I've used Scrivener again, yeah, to um, kind of lay out the rough lines of a story. I'm not quite sure where it ends, this one. I'm, I'm tic-tacking, but I think, I think at that moment where I work out exactly what happens, I will solidify in my mind exactly who the characters are because I'll know what decision they made and then I can get going. How have you been able to manage or reconcile the fact that, um, you know, because as a journo, as a, as a, when you're writing 500 word pieces or whatever, it does not take that long. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's something that you, you can research it, you write it, you file it, and there's kind of instant gratification. Whereas this, the production of a book t- takes so much longer. I mean, you, you, the, the seed of the idea was when you saw that Star of David and then there's the research and then there was NaNoWriMo and that was already 2016. We're already 2018. How can you sustain that, especially when you're so used to things that had instant gratification by comparison? Yes, well, that has been a learning curve for me because I'm not <laughs> the most <laughs> I'm not the most uh, patient person in life, but it has been quite a luxury. I think I am um, quite a nerd at heart, a history nerd. I've always, I loved when I was at university, my thesis year, where I just dived in and researched something, some obscure thing about um, literature for days on end. And I think it's been heaven to, at this stage of my life, really, it's good for me to slow down and be thoughtful and dive in and do something properly. And it's it's really hard work. I mean, I, with all my publishing background and journalistic background, thought, hmm, I've probably got this. I could, you know, I'm an avid reader. I could have a go at a novel. And I completely underestimated the amount of work and time and dedication it um, took. I know, you know, it's all the things that we tell our kids and, um, you know, to persevere and keep your passion and don't quit and keep going. I find myself giving my own pep talks every day. So it's, yeah, it's tricky. So if it's, if it's, if it's so much hard work, presumably it's all worth it, of course. As if, and if that's the case, what then finally is the most rewarding thing about the whole experience? I think it is every day when I go to bed, I am just so grateful, really. I mean, it sounds a bit naff, but I just love how I spend my time now and I just love that my job is to read and research and write. And the most rewarding thing 
I think my most rewarding thing, obviously it's very rewarding. I'm holding the book in my hand here, but, um, and that is terribly rewarding. But when you get messages from people, um, especially the beta readers and people who lived in Shanghai at that time, saying that they found the book had really captured the era and that it was, while the book was especially heartbreaking, they found it heartwarming and I had a letter from a woman, an advanced reader who wrote to me and she said that she felt like it had, it explained her aunt's um, character to her, that her aunt was, had been a refugee and she was always so happy. She was always so stoic. And this woman had actually, um, if you could believe this, I said, you should write a book. She had caught a hot air balloon out of Germany. And um, I know, right. She should write a novel. And, um, and she said, you know, her aunt was just this incredibly grateful, kind, just very, um, very happy with what she had. Family was everything, you know, the basics, family, friendship, kindness, courage, all those things were in her aunt and she could see them reflected through the character and she could understand how that came to be. And that was, I mean, I, I was almost in tears after reading that. Mm. Mm. Because I think those are the lessons I learned from interviewing those people. I can, and to think that I may have got some of that on the page is, I mean, that's, mm. that's the best moment, I think. What's your advice then for aspiring writers? Well, I actually asked my children what I should say for this because they're big listeners of this podcast and they said, keep going, use all your fingers when you type. And work, <laughs> and work in a soundproof room. What? <laughs> but, <laughs> I think they meant keep away from the kids when you're working because I lose my train of thought. But my real, um, my real tips were to um, get some tools and learn the craft. So I think it's really valuable to do a course of a creative writing course because you really learn about the craft of writing. The second tip I would say is to read widely and read outside the genre that you write to. I read everything from memoir to crime to thrillers um, to romance and I read all of them um, with intent or with purpose, kind of looking through each one saying, I see what you did there. Yeah. And, um, and, and I sticky note those books too all the time. I'll be in bed reading and I'll whip out a stiffy note and write a note and I'll say, you know, great character foil or, ooh, um, mm. an upending of a mystery or that was a great red herring. I, I sticky note all my books as I read. Um, mm. And the third one is to join a community, join an online community. I, um, I, I got into this community, I guess, by the Alison Tate website that somebody put me onto. And then I've since uh, met lots of writers online who have become my real life friends, which is lovely. Um, And I've got a lot of inspiration from people who were doing it when I was, um, and still do, I should say, every day, um, connecting with people who were doing the same thing I found and getting tips from them has been enormously helpful. at the same time, it can be a bit overwhelming because you can see people ploughing ahead and writing four books and um, 20,000 words in a month. And um, and I think you have to step away sometimes. At some point you have to, 
um, you can procrastinate a lot too, looking at what everyone's doing and what everyone's yeah. writing. And you really have to step away, like use that to bore you and step away and find your own voice and find mm-hmm. a way for you to do it. So that's my final tip. Trust yourself. I love those tips. And also um, I think that's interesting what you said about reading books as kind of like analytically and saying, I see what you did there, because one of the things I found with this book is, and, and, and I find that if, uh, if it's a great book, I, I personally don't think I see what you did there because I'm so engrossed in it and ah. that, that, has, that you've done that successfully. Because oh, I, I know I've caught myself, I caught myself from time to time going, oh, I'm not analysing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm, thank so, you. Yeah, well done. And it's a beautiful book. So congratulations, Kirsty. Everyone should go buy it and read it. Thanks so much <laughs> for your time today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Short Story Essentials, will show you the techniques to create your own 2,500 word short story. Created by Kathy Tasker, a fiction editor with more than 25 years' experience, this course has a very clear goal to help you write your own short story that you can be proud of, one that you can enter in short story competitions and share with your friends and family. We give you the blueprint to structure your short story, teach you vital techniques so that your characters come to life and give you the tools to bring your own ideas and creativity to the process. The course is split into seven modules and each is designed to guide you through each step of writing your full story. Then, once you've completed it, you can submit your story for personal feedback from your tutor. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash stories. There you go, Kirsty Manning. Oh, good one. You guys are very lucky, Val. What do you mean? Well, you get to interview all these writers every week. Oh, yes. It's, it is, it's, it's quite a privilege, quite fun. Very, very, and you get get to discover so much about other people's creative creative processes. And while there are similarities, it's often the differences that are the little gems that you can experiment with and 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 try out. So I hope um, our listeners are getting some good tips from all of our interviewees as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. So what are you doing this coming week, uh, Dean? I was about to say Al. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not in Canada, that's for sure. Um, it's, but in true Al fashion, it's school holidays. So I also have um, children, which I'll be wrangling, uh, just uh, doing doing some property real estate Copywriting, probably. Um, <laughs> working on working on Australian Writer Centre content. There's always a newsletter coming out every week. Um, yeah, just just copywriting work, really. What about awesome. you, Val? 
Uh, I need to clean my office, to be honest. I'm looking around <laughs> right now and it's somewhat of a disaster and has been somewhat of a disaster for some time. So today's job is a hell of a lot of tidying and cleaning. It's not very exciting, but I kind of feel that I'm at that stage where I'm going to get through, I'm going to like just be annoyed with myself and won't be able to do anything creatively or that's really just procrastinate cleaning, I'm sure. Um, so that's yes. me. Well, that's, that's where you need your, your your own brand of products. Yes, <laughs> our own brand of cleaning products. Now, um, Dean's audio is going a bit strange, so I'm going to tell you where you find him online, and that is at deancurry.com.au. And, of course, you can um, find me at Valerie Koo on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show notes at So You Want To Be A Writer dot com dot au uh we're gonna have dean back next week but since his audio has gone strange we're going to have to say a virtual goodbye to him and um uh you'll get to chat to him again next week thanks for listening everyone and we look forward to chatting to you again next time thanks for listening to so you want to be a writer you'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources giveaways competitions and much more <laughs>